So Exodus 3. Exodus 3. We're talking about our names of God. We're in the Names of God series, and so we've talked about several so far. And uh, today's text is introducing us to um, one of the most revered names of God. Um, but, you know, when, when we're going through a series like this, it's, this is really difficult. Um, and we're trying to figure out, like, how do we describe God? Because that's really what's going on here. And some would say, you know, some might say, well, why is there so many different names of God? It's because we're trying to have finite people are, are trying, very limited people are trying to understand an infinite God is really what's going on. When I was a kid, I remember about every Christmas time, uh, you know, the, the TV network, I can't remember which one it was, uh, would air the movie uh, The Sound of Music, okay? And maybe some of you are familiar with that movie. It's an old movie starring Julie Andrews, and it was one of my mom's favorite movies, and so I remember uh, always around that time, and, and my mom's birthday is, is right around Christmas time too, so it usually kind of ended up around her birthday and, and when they aired it, and so we would typically gather in front of the TV and uh, watch The Sound of Music once a year. And so as, as a result, uh, I probably could sing all the songs that are in there. Um, you're not going to hear me sing all the songs. I'm just telling you that I could, and you're going to have to take my word for it. Um, but one of the first songs, it's not the very first song, but one of the very, or, or, you know, part of that first song is you have the, uh, the nuns in the abbey, and they're, they're voicing their frustration with Maria. Do you remember this? Remember this? Okay. And one of the lines in it, is says, it says, they're basically saying, how do you describe someone like Maria? And then one of the lines that's always stuck with me is like, how do you catch a what? Cloud, a moon, okay. But then after that is how do you catch a cloud and do what? Pin it down, right? It says, how do you catch a cloud and pin it down? And that imagery has always stuck with me. Like, how do you do that? You can't do that. It's very similar when we're talking about God here. It's like, okay, how do we, how do we understand God? How, how, do, how do we get at his essence here? And our text today is very helpful in that here. So trying to explain God is a, is a really daunting task. And so we're going to be introduced into uh, Jehovah Yahweh I Am, okay, the self-existent, the unchanging, uh, holy God here today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read Exodus uh, chapter 3, verses 1 uh, through, uh, I believe, uh, 14. Yeah, I'll do 1 through 14. So this is page 46, if you're using the Bibles provided for you there in the seats. Now Moses was keeping the, the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. 
And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which, uh, with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what do I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is a beautiful text. It's, there's a lot going on here. We could spend so much time here. There's a lot of the background material that I'll try to mention as we go along to, to get us oriented to where we're at here. But this last part here when he says, I am, this is considered to be one of the most significant names of God because this is what God himself said, this is my name here. And so, as we look at this, uh, this is what the name I am would look like if we're going to transliterate it into the English letters from Hebrew. It would be just four letters. Uh, sometimes it's called the name of four, meaning the, the four letters here. Um, and, you know, biblical uh, Hebrew does not have uh, vowels in it. It's only consonants in biblical Hebrew. And so, you'd have these four consonants here of what we would have in our English language, Y-H-W-H. It appears that the Hebrew people did not want to say this name for fear of taking the name, of of breaking later on, breaking the the Ten Commandments, of taking the the Lord's name in vain. And so this name they would not pronounce or they would not say out loud. And so they they prefer the more uh, generic terms of Adonai or Elohim okay, which would be translated Lord a lot of times in the Scriptures. As time went on, um, the vowels from Adonai and Elohim were added to these four uh, uh, consonants here, and so we, this is how we get what's known as Yahweh here. And so maybe you've heard that pronounced, and actually, you know, uh, we aren't actually technically for certain on how to pronounce that word because it was just never spoken. And so this is the best way that scholars say is probably Yahweh, but there could be other things to, other ways to pronounce it. But this is how we get Yahweh. Now, a Latin version of that is Jehovah, okay? And so I'm just giving you a progression of how these names, how we got these names and what they are talking about here. So this would be the, the Latin version of it here. And so I am Jehovah Yahweh. These are all referring to the same title. Now, just by way of, of reference, of maybe so you can see it in your Bibles, uh, most English translations, 
they try to designate whenever Yahweh is used by putting the word Lord in small caps. And so it kind of looks like that. And so if you come across in your English translations where it says Lord, whereas it's in small caps, that's signifying, okay, the, the word behind this is this I am, is this uh, Yahweh word here, okay? And that would be different. And so if you see just the word Lord written in, in normal letters, uh, that would be either Adonai or Elohim most likely here. So this is a way that they, English translators try to designate that for our understanding here. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at what does this mean, and we're going to do our best guess at it. Our best attempt, I should say, because there are so many ways that we could go with this sermon. And we're trying to talk about this, and, and God is infinite. There's so many different ways that we could talk about this today. But we're going to use Moses as our launching pad here. What we're going to do is, if you notice when I read through this, really Moses had two main questions for God in this conversation. The first one was, who am I? And the second one is, who are you? Okay, and so what we're going to do is we're going to frame the rest of the sermon around those two questions, and we'll try to get a better understanding of who is God and why is I am so important, okay? Let me pause and pray and ask God's blessing and his enablement, and uh, we'll dive in. Father, um, we've read your word, we've set the table a little bit, given some uh, preliminary uh, information just to get us oriented together here. God... When we talk about your word, when we talk about you, uh, we need your spirit's guidance. We need your enablement. We need your help, God. I, I need your, uh, your, your, uh, um, your enablement to, to communicate in a way that's helpful to those who are listening, but more importantly, that is accurate to the text here. And so I pray that I would be sensitive to your spirit's leading in this and that I would communicate in a way that is, is faithful to the text and helpful to those who are here. Well, God, we also need the Spirit to help us with distractions and, and to minimize those things and to keep our minds focused. And so that's what we're praying for now. We pray that we would be able to put everything aside just for these few minutes and that we would, um, that we would, we would be, be able to focus intently on your Word and on you because you deserve our attention. You deserve us to put everything else aside and focus on you. And so I pray that you would help us to do that. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. First question, who am I? This is the first thing. So, so you got to understand Moses is in this situation here. Uh, Moses is minding his own business, so to speak. He sees this burning bush. And I love the way uh, this is recorded in Moses, the one who recorded this for us years later. In verse uh, 3, he says, uh, he sees that this bush is burning, it's not consumed. And he says, I will turn aside to see this great sight. You know, it's like the understatement of the year there. You, you see this, it's like, well, I guess I will stop what I'm doing and go see what's going on over here. Um, you know, and so he turns aside to see this. And so in, out of this bush, all of a sudden, he hears the voice of God. He's having this conversation with God. And as we read in the text, God tells him what he's going to do. He's going to free the people of Israel. Because remember that they were slaves of Egypt. Remember that they had gone into captivity. Remember that now they were making bricks for Pharaoh and all these things were happening uh, uh, because uh, they were enslaved because there was a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph any longer. And so just started treating the Egyptians, or excuse me, the Israelites with, uh, with contempt and oppressing them. And this was going on. And God reveals to, to, to Moses, says, you're going to be the guy. 
You're going to be the guy who's going to lead these people. You're going to go to Pharaoh, and you're going to say, basically, let God's people go, and you're going to be the guy. And the very first question, which is very understandable, is Moses says, well, who am I? I mean, I, I'm just in the wilderness here. I'm just tending some sheep here. I, I, I mean, you know, I, there's just, no, you got the wrong guy here. And so as we look at this, we see that one of the reasons why that Moses, I believe, was so um, adamant that he just couldn't do this um, was because um, he, he had some real significant insecurities and anxieties. In our text here that we read, we don't see that played out as much, but in chapter 4, we're going to see as the conversation goes on between Moses and God that these insecurities come to light a little bit more. In verse 1 of chapter 4, if you just look your attention, take your attention over there, Texas 4.1, Moses says, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Right, And then uh, later on in verse 10, he says, but I am not eloquent, okay? It says I'm slow of speech and tongue, so apparently he had some speech impediment here. Um, and we just see that, that there's these times where Moses is bringing up these things where he says, who am I that's going to be able to do this here? One of the reasons, and, and I think it's important to talk about this because this will help us understand the power of God in our lives, is that Moses here, he's, first of all, he's paralyzed by past failures, now, what do I mean by that? Was this the first time Moses, when he was going to go to Egypt to hear when God told him to go to Egypt, was this the first time he was in Egypt? No, he grew up there. Remember that he grew up there. He was, he was born of a, of a Hebrew mother, but remember, she put him in the basket, and then it was Pharaoh's daughter that found him in the basket because the law then was that all these Hebrew boys were supposed to be killed. And so in effort to save her son, Moses' mother puts him in the basket, and Pharaoh's daughter finds him, and then she raises him as, as her own. And then according to the twist of the story is that she needs some help. She needs a midwife to do this. And so who does she get? She ends up getting Moses' mother to do it. It's just a beautiful story of a Option and God's providence. It's just a beautiful story. But the point is, is that Moses grows up in Egypt. That's where he grows up. But is this the first time that when he's asked, he, so God's asking him, he says, I want you to go before Pharaoh, and I want you to basically defend the people of your brothers and sisters, of your Hebrew brothers and sisters. Is this the first time that Moses decides to stand up for his Hebrew brothers and sisters? No. Do you remember what he did? Remember, he sees a, a, an Egyptian a master beating a Hebrew brother of his. And so what does Moses do? Do you remember? He kills him. He rises up. He defends his Hebrew brother, and he, and he kills him. And then what does he do? He hides the body. Okay? So he hides the body in the sand. The next day, what happens? Moses sees two Hebrew brothers arguing. He says, stop it. Knock it off. Why are you guys fighting with each other? And they respond saying, Thank you, wise one. We appreciate your intervening and saving us from the sin that we have been committing, dustly. <laughs> no, that is not what he, they, they say. They reject him. They reject his leadership. They reject his interjection. They say, who are you? You are not our leader. You are not our judge. So don't you understand why Moses here, this is in the back of his mind here. This is years before this has happened. And now God's saying, you're going to go to Egypt and you're going to lead these people out. He says, no, I, I've tried this. I've, I've tried to be a help here. And I was shot down right away. He was paralyzed. Past failures. But not only that, but he doubted his giftedness. 
He doubts his giftedness. I've already showed you in chapter 4 how he says, you know, I've got the speech impediment. He says, you know, people aren't going to listen to me. I'm not persuasive. That There's just no way. I, 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 I tried doing this before uh, um, in, in the way I speak and the limitations of my speech. There's no way that people are going to be persuaded. There's no way that Pharaoh is going to say, yeah, you're right. There's no way that people are going to follow me. And interestingly enough, for those of us who know the rest of the story because we've read ahead, is that we know that, there, that some of what Moses has feared actually comes true, right? Pharaoh doesn't just say, you know what, that's a good plan. I said, why didn't I think of that? Yes, please, please, take most of my slave labor. Please, take them away. Yes, I should have thought about this. Mo- that's not the answer that he gets. And then when the people are following him, at the very first sign of anything being difficult, they didn't say, hey, brother, we're going to follow you to the end. We so appreciate you leading us, and, and, you know, we are going to follow you all the way to Mordor. <laughs> you know, that's not what they say, right? That's not what they say. They want to kill him. They, they say to him, we were better off as slaves in Egypt than following you. So some of what Moses was afraid of actually was coming true here. So it wasn't like that these, these fears or these insecurities that Moses had are completely unfounded. So Moses, he's paralyzed by past failures. He, he's, he's completely doubting his giftedness. He's saying, who am I? And not only that, then we see also that he really just does not want the assignment. And can you blame him? I mean, can you really blame him? I mean, this would be in, in some ways, I mean, if you think about it, and it's not even, this is not even... This would be like, you know, if, if someone said, hey, listen, I need you to go stand before Senate. And I need you to argue for some Christian value, whatever it be. Maybe it would be a, a Christian view of marriage or gender or sexuality or something like that. And I want you to stand in front of, of Congress and, and I want you to, to plead the case for a biblical understanding of these issues here. How many of you are like, boy, that sounds like a great Friday night. I can't wait. I mean, all of us would be like, well, who are I? I mean, who am I to do this? I don't, I don't know if I'm convincing enough. I don't, we all have this. So, again, it's easy for us to look at this text. We know what God's plan is at the back end of it. We know what he's going to do here. But it, and it's easy to say, come on, Moses, give us the program here. But what I'm trying to get you to understand here is that this was a difficult assignment here. And Moses really did have some, some objections here of saying, I don't know if I'm the guy for this. I don't know if I have the abilities to do this. And so, in short, what was happening here is that Moses, he is absolutely paralyzed by the previous failures and his poor decisions. He was insecure, he was anxious, and he was unmotivated. Anyone here ever feel that way? Anyone ever feel like you don't measure up? Anyone ever deal with anxiety here? Anyone ever deal with, I don't think I've got the giftedness? I don't think I have the abilities? Anyone here like that? Anyone here paralyzed by a past failure? Poor decisions. It just plagues you. How could I have done that? How could I then be a disciple maker if I did this? And we're talking about making disciples, and we're taking that emphasis as something we've been trying to do for many years here. And another wave of this is with this class that we're doing at 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings. And one of the things, one of the biggest objections that people have is they say, well, I don't have the gift in this. 
or I'm not mature enough, or you don't know what I've done. You see, Moses was right there. Every excuse you have in your book, Moses has already given it. And do you know how God responds? Look at chapter 4 in verse 13. Well, verse 12. Now, this is God saying, Now therefore go, and I will be your mouth with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he says, Moses says, O Lord, O my Lord, please send someone else. God responds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. This is how he responds. Now, why does he respond this way? Well, one is because he's already explained who he was. He's already explained. uh, uh, So this is going to be the answer to our second question here in a second here. But he's already given a sign. Remember, he said, and this was read for, we read this. It says in verse 22, he says, I will be with you. This is chapter 3, verse 22. Chapter 3, verse 22. He says, I will be with you, and this will be a sign that I have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, Egypt, you shall serve the God again on this mountain. And so he says, I'm going to give you a sign that you're going to know that I'm with you because in the future you're going to worship me with the people, the liberated people on this mountain again. And you think, well, that's kind of a weird sign because the sign is something that is supposed to happen in the present that tells me what's going to happen in the future. But what you're telling me is I've got to wait till the future to tell me what's going to happen in the present. And God says, Exactly. Because it's about matter of faith. It's about following me in faith. And so you need to know that's what the end chapter is. You and the liberated people will be worshiping me and serving me on this mountain again. Now go do what I'm telling you to do. And faith. But Moses, he's struggling here. He is absolutely struggling. And just parenthetically here, this is not in the notes, so this is free. Parenthetically here is Moses, being the author of this, is completely transparent with his own weaknesses. I love that about the Bible, that our heroes have warts, and even the ones who are writing about themselves don't hold back because they know it's about God who is saving them and redeeming them and enabling them. This is a beautiful thing about about the Bible that we have here. So this really leads us then to a second question here, because this is why God's angry with Moses in this situation, is because he says, listen, I've already explained this to you, and you keep coming up with excuses. Stop it. Now, I just need to say, even in God's anger, he doesn't write Moses off, okay? We need to point that out. Even though that he's angry with Moses in this point, he's not saying, okay, done, I'm done with you. He's still going to use Moses, but he's correcting him here. So here's the second question, who are you? Okay, so this is the question, he says, who am I, verse 11. And then, as, as, as the assignment's been given and all this stuff, he says, okay, if I come, this is verse 13 of chapter 3, if I come to the people and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to them, and they ask me, what is his name, what do I say to them? He says, okay, what am I going to say? Now, this question kind of confused me for a long time. Because it was like, did Moses just not know who he was talking to? So why is he saying, who shall I say sent me? What's this about? Because we know that Moses did indeed know who he was talking to. Because look at verse 6 of chapter 3. Right from the bush, he says, I am the God of your father. 
the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And look at Moses' response. He hides his face because he's afraid even to look at God. So Moses knows who he's talking to. So why is he asking this question? Who are you? It didn't make sense to me. What is this going on? Here's what's happening. Moses, what he's doing is he's asking for an official name. Because if Moses is going to have to stand before Pharaoh, Okay? If he's going to go to the Egyptian ruler, who, we, by the way, is the most powerful ruler in the known world at that time. Okay? And this time, there is no greater power than the Egyptian nation. And Pharaoh's in charge of it. And so if he's going to go stand before the most powerful, arguably the most powerful man on the planet at that time, and tell them, hey, by the way, you've got to give up all your slave labor here. He says, I've got to have a name. And the reason why is because Egypt was a polytheistic culture. Many, many gods. Okay? And so the fact is that he said, okay, they're going to accept that there are lots of different deities. I need to give a name. And just by saying the name of Isaac or the, or the God, excuse me, the God of Abraham or the God of Isaac or the God of Jacob, that's not going to cut it. And the reason why is because, remember, earlier, and we don't have time to turn there, but at the beginning of this book, just a couple chapters ago, we find that after Joseph dies, because remember, Joseph, he was a tremendously powerful ruler in Egypt. You know, God had raised him up, and everything was going great there. And how the people came there was because of the famine. The Hebrew people came there because of the famine. Years and years go by. The beginning of Exodus starts, it says, now there was a Pharaoh that came to the land who did not know Joseph. Now, what that means is I have a hard time believing that he had no earthly concept of who Joseph was. I mean, it was just a big part of their nation's history. What I think was happening there is it says that he just didn't care. He didn't care. And years and years had gone by where after Joseph died, he, they just he fell off of any type of influence. Joseph's influence had ran its course. And now they were oppressed. The, the, the Hebrew people were oppressed. And so Moses understands this. Moses knows that he's going to go before a leader that doesn't really care about Abraham, doesn't care about Isaac or Jacob. And so if he just simply goes there and says, okay, I'm going to stand here and I'm going to say, uh, um, you know, the God of these people, these patriarchs, uh, they're telling, this God is telling you to do this, that's not going to have any influence. So he says, I need a name. I need a name. What do I tell the people there? And so this is where we get this really wonderful answer from God. He says, I am. Now, there's a lot of debate about this, about what God meant by this. There's a minority view, which I, do, which I do not hold to. There's a minority view that God was just being dismissive and saying, I am who I am. I'm not even going to dignify that question with a response. That's a minority view and scholarship on this, and I don't hold to it. I actually think that God was, was communicating deep theological realities about his essence in this response. When he says, I am who I am. What, what, what's he talking about there? Well, first of all, he's talking about this idea of he's set apart. He says, I am who I am. There's no one else like me, okay? And so he says, I am completely set apart. There's no one like me. Okay? You need to understand that. So when you say, I am, when you say that I am sent you, sent you there is no one. All of those plur, uh, in a pluralistic society like Egypt was, in the polytheistic society like Egypt was, he says, there is no other God who is like 
me. And remember, I told you last week, I think we talked about how that this is kind of a theme in the beginning part of the Bible here of the Moses and the Pentateuch uh, is saying there he's making the case, there is no other God like God, like Jehovah, like Yahweh. And this is what he's saying here. I am who I am. That I am uh, uh, completely by myself. I am set apart. But not only is that, is that there's this idea also that he's unchanging here. It, it, there's, there's this idea that he says, I am who I am, and I always have been this way. I am, and I have never changed from who I am. And that's what he's communicating here. All scholars agree on this point, that this is what he's communicating here. There's this unchangeableness here that he's communicating. And remember, centuries had elapsed since the time of the patriarchs, and Israel has been oppressed and enslaved. And now what God is saying, he says, I am who I am. And what he's saying there is he's saying that I haven't changed. I have not changed from the covenant that I made with Abraham. He says that, remember that covenant that I made with Abraham many years ago? We looked at that last week. He says, I haven't changed from that. I am who I am. I have not moved one inch. I am who I am. Okay? That's what you need to tell them. So we have this idea of these unchanging, and then lastly with this idea, we could actually probably figure out more nuances of this, but for our purposes today, I'm just going to limit it to three, we have this idea that he's self-existent. He's actually self-existent. He says, I am who I am. He's like, I, I, I don't need any outside influence on my life. I am who I am. I don't need anyone making me someone who I'm not, or improving me. I am who I am. Now, the reason why I settled on those three characteristics is because I believe those are the three most important ones that are being communicated in this text. Because I think that's illustrated in the whole purpose of the burning bush. You ever think, why, why did God choose this burning bush? You know why? You read through this, and Moses, he's minding his own business. He sees a bush that's burning, but it's not being consumed. He looks at it, and he says, okay, we'll go look at it. And then God speaks to him out of this. Why did he do that? Why did he just send an angel or an email? Why did he do this? Why did he do this burning bush thing here? I don't pretend to have all the answers to that, but I do think that he was setting the table for this conversation right here. He was showing who he was when he says, I am who I am. This idea set apart. You know what another word for set apart is? You know what the word means? It's holy. That's what the word holy means. It means set apart. And in the context here, when Moses starts to approach the, the bush, what happens? The voice says, what? What does he tell him to do? Yeah, take the shoes off. Why? holy ground. And it's not just in the sense of sinlessness. So a lot of times when we think of holy, we think of sinless, and that's a good connection to make because that's what that word uh, 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 connotes. But here's also what's being said. It's set apart, completely set apart. Sanctified would be uh, another use for this or another way to communicate this. And so this idea of holy or sanctified is set apart. The bush tells us, it says, listen, this is a set-apart situation. And why did God do it that way? Because he was going to explain this with I am. and saying, I am completely by myself. I am completely set apart. There's no one like me. And then this idea of unchanging here, we see this in, 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 in the bush as well. I mean, here it is. It's, it's, it's on fire, people. It is on fire. Have you ever seen a bush or a tree be on fire? It doesn't stay that way, okay? 
I mean, it, it changes, it, it diminishes. If you, if, you, if you want to do like s'mores or something and, and you put the, the firewood in the pit and all this stuff and you do it, you got to keep adding wood to it. You got to keep adding. Why? Because it consumes it. The fire actually consumes it. Okay? The bush wasn't being consumed, it wasn't changing. That's what drew Moses' attention. He says, I see it on fire. And that wasn't probably that unusual, being out in the desert, lightning strikes and things like that. And so, you know, or they would probably use it for kindling for their fires while they're out with their sheep and things like that. So it wasn't unusual to see a bush necessarily on fire. But he's like, but it's not changing. I shall turn aside and go see this thing. Okay? It's unchanging. So he's using the bush as that. And then this idea of self-existent. I mean, obviously it's regenerating its own life combating the effects of the fire. And so it's completely self-existent here. So this is the reason, the, these are the reasons why I believe that this is what God is primarily trying to communicate by telling Moses, you want a name, I'll give you a name. My name is I am. I am set apart. I'm unchanging. I am self-existent. You can't get anyone better than me. Now go set the people free. How can you see why when Moses kept arguing, God's anger, he says, I've already answered these questions. What more do I have to do to prove myself to you? So the one, I have a few purposes with the sermon. One is I want us just to be in awe of God. I, 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 my prayer is that every one of us, we leave this time of spending together looking at this text and we're going to say, God, there truly is no one else like you. And you deserve my devotion, you deserve my obedience, you deserve my love, my adoration, you deserve my affection, you deserve everything, because there is no one like you. That's a prayer of mine, okay? Here's another thing, a question popped in my head as I was just meditating on this and this text and, and the sermon, and, and, and sometimes I try to think of, well, you know, what would be the holes? What would be the, the problems with this? What would actually be discouraging to someone if they listened to this sermon? And here's what I came up with. How in the world could God relate to us or we could relate to a God like this? Doesn't this, by, doesn't Moses' answer, the answer that, that Moses gets from God, doesn't this actually create a distance between us and God? I mean, he is so far transcendent. He is so set apart. He is unchanging. I mean, we as creatures, as humans, we actually thrive on change. Now, I know some of you are thinking, I don't like change. You know, I don't like it. Actually, we all anticipate and, and depend on change. I mean, we all just know that we're going to have to get a new car sometimes. We all just know that, you know, all these things are going to change in life. And so we plan for it, okay? We may not always like it, but we plan on it because we know that's just part of being a human is that things change. Nothing stays the same, right? And so things wear out, things change. That's just part of our DNA and our understanding. So when we think of something that is absolutely unchangeable, I think... How, I can't even relate to a God like that. And furthermore, how can a God like that relate to me? Or that he's self-existent? How in the world can I relate to a God like this? So yes, that's wonderful. And yes, it's amazing. We think, oh man, that's just awesome that God's that way. But how do you relate to someone like that? Ever wonder something like that? Does God seem so far removed? That you're just like, I, I mean, it's great. 
It's good theology. I don't know how to relate to that. See, the Bible doesn't end here. The Bible doesn't end here. I'll tell you how we relate to a God like that. It's through Jesus. That's how we relate. Because Jesus being God, guess what? That whole set-apartness, he understood. He became a human, and he embraced commonality. He was born to a poor family. He knew what it was like to be a commoner as a carpenter. He knew what that was like. He experienced commonality. God experienced that. How can God relate to us? How can a separate, transcendent, separated God relate to someone like me? Because Jesus experienced that. That's how. Unchanging. Jesus understood what it was like to go through change. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature with favor and in favor with God and man. Jesus apparently knew what it was like to have a father, a, a parent, one day, and then the parent be dead the next day. Most scholarship believes that Joseph died when Jesus was a teenager. There's no mention of Joseph after the account of Jesus in the temple at 12 years old. And there's only a mention of Mary at the cross, not Joseph. Most likely, Joseph died. Jesus understood what it was like to have a parent one day and the next day not have that. Jesus understood the fickleness of humanity. How one day people would love you and the next day hate you. Would support you and encourage you and the next day just want your utter ruin. Jesus, God, understands change. And then the self-existent one. God doesn't need anything to exist. He always has been, he always will be, and he, always, uh, and he, he is and he always will be. He, he, it's like God lives in the eternal present, as some uh, uh, philosophers talk about. So we have this idea of like, how could God, the self-existent one, relate to someone who is so utterly dependent? Like, we are all dependent people here. Jesus. Jesus, he, the, do you understand this? Do you understand this? If Mary does not feed baby Jesus, Jesus dies. I mean, he needed Mary to feed her feed him. He needed people to care for him. He, he needed people to take him in. It was told that Jesus said one time, he says, I don't have a place to lay my head at night. Now we know he slept. So people had to provide that for him. People provided food for him. He was dependent. There was, there was a time where Jesus, remember in John chapter 4, he was tired. And so he sat down at a well and the disciples said, you rest, we'll go get you something to eat. Remember that? The self-existent one was tired and hungry. How can we relate to a God that is so transcendent? And how can he relate to someone like us? I'm telling you, my friend, it's because of Jesus. And this is why we worship him. This is why we adore him. This is why he is our only hope. And this is why Moses, he's dealing with God's corrective anger here. And God still uses him. And so what a takeaway from this is that we should never, ever doubt the great I am. And we should never use the, the excuse of, well, he just can't understand us or I can't understand him. Because Jesus lived that life. And he lived it so that he would identify with us. And that if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and we believe in him, the Bible's 
says we can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And it's more than just having forgiveness of sins. We have life abundant. And I'm not talking about all, everything that is on your wish list is going to be granted because that's not how this works. But what I am saying is that we can find contentment, we can find joy, we can find happiness, even when life is difficult here. Because we have a transcendent, we have a set apart, we have an unchanging, self-existent God who can identify with us because of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing to think about. And so this is why we follow Jesus. This is why he, God, is the great I am. 